Our scripture reading today is from Luke 15, 11 through 24. And he said, there was a man who had two sons and the younger of them said to his father, father, give me the shares of property that is coming to me. And he divided his property between them. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all he had and took a journey into a far country. And there he squandered his property in reckless living. And when he had spent everything, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country, who sent him into the fields to feed pigs. And he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate, and no one gave him anything. But when he came to himself, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger? I will arise and go to my father, and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he rose and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And he ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and earth before you. I am no longer to be worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For my son that was dead is alive again. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, Mary Linda, for reading that passage for us this morning. This is a pretty classic biblical text, a pretty familiar one, I think. A lot of people are familiar with the story of the prodigal son to the point that culturally we can use the word prodigal and people know what that means. It's an interesting story that Jesus tells here because it's really the story of two sons uh, we're going to talk about the younger son this week, and then next week we're going to talk about the older son. We'll finish the rest of the story. Um, but today we're going to talk about the younger son here in this passage. Just to get our orientation, we read Luke 15, 11 through 24. If you're wondering what Luke 15, 1 to 10 is about, um, it's the preamble to what's happening here in this, and that is where Jesus tells two other stories of something lost being found. And there's this escalation that happens in these three stories. The first is the story of a, of a shepherd who has a hundred sheep and he loses one. And so that's a story of somebody losing one percent. And then you have a story of a woman who has ten silver coins and she loses one of those. Now she's lost ten percent. And when they find what it is that they had lost they celebrate and they invite their neighbors in and they say rejoice with me because this thing that was lost is now found. And then we come to the third story and this is part of the format of, of grouping things in threes that you know that it's the third one that the other two are setting you up for. And it's the story of a father who has two sons. And it's not just that it goes from losing 1% to 10%. To 50%, but it's 1% to 10% to everything. 
The chapter opens, we've been talking about the context in which Jesus tells these parables. It opens with Jesus saying, now tax, with, with Luke saying, now tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him, and the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. And it's in this context where you have irreligious people attracted to Jesus and religious leaders looking at Jesus and wondering how he can put up with that. And so he tells these stories about things being lost, being found. And what Jesus is doing here in this parable of the two sons is he's taking the sinners and the tax collectors and the Pharisees and scribes and he's putting them in the story. The sinners and the tax collectors are one of the sons. The Pharisees and the scribes are the other son. And it's two kinds of people we have. Tim Keller refers to them as relativists and moralists. The relativists are people who look around at the world and they say, you know what the problem is here? The problem is the moralists for their narrow-mindedness and their legalism. And I just want to get as far away as I possibly can from all of these constraints that they would try to just hang on me. And then the moralists would look around and they would think that the problems with the world are the relativists. They have no discipline, no sense of duty or reverence. And if they don't get with the program, they should just go away. And so these are the two groups that Jesus is talking to. What's interesting in this parable is both groups are listening to him. Both, both of these groups are interested in what it is that he has to say. And it's to these two groups that he tells this parable in which he reveals each of their approaches to life. And he makes two statements about it. The first is he says, your approaches to life are essentially how you really relate to God. I'm going to show you how you relate to God. And then he goes on to say, and you're both wrong. <laughs> you're both wrong. Because at the heart of the gospel is this conviction that all people were created for a relationship with God, our maker. And this isn't just a Christian thought. It's a, it's a thought about all of humanity as a whole. That we were made for a relationship with our maker. But on our own, none of us can come to that relationship rightly. None of us can. And until we do come into that relationship rightly, we're lost. We're as lost as the sheep and the coin and the sun. And so today we're going to focus on the younger son. He's the relativist. He's the one who looks at the moralist with all the rules and traditions and patterns and all this stuff. And he's like, that's not for me. I'm not going to live under that. You're not going to hold me down. I'm going to be free. But his is only part of the story. It's an important part. And Jesus invites us all to examine ourselves and see if we, in fact, relate here. So maybe you relate in this parable to the younger son, the one who wants to get out of there and try it on his own and be free of having to deal with the father's system. So there are kind of three parts to this story. You have the prodigal, the prodigal leaves, then the prodigal negotiates his return, and then the prodigal comes home. Those are kind of the three movements of this story, if you will. So often when this story is told, the momentum really focuses on this younger prodigal, this younger, younger son, 
And he comes back and then we're left with kind of this warm feeling about how this is a story about forgiving and this is a story about loving people in spite of the mistakes that they make. But when Jesus told this story and the Pharisees and the scribes were listening, this was an upsetting story. It was a scandalous story. There was no warm response to this at all. There was indignance. And the reason there would have been is because of what the younger son did. And what he did is he shamed his father's name. He shamed his father by making this unthinkable request. Because what he's saying to his father is he's saying, I want my share of the inheritance before you're dead. He's the younger son, meaning he wouldn't have gotten a 50-50 share. So let's, you know, let's just ballpark and say maybe he's looking at 40% and his older brother is getting 60%. For the father to even begin to fulfill the request the younger son is making, there are things he has to do. Because he's not just flush with cash, he's going to have to liquidate some things. He's going to have to free it up. Right? And so he has to liquidate land, maybe, livestock, sell crops. Because what his son wants is not land and livestock and crops. What he wants is cash so he can get out of there. The son wants his father's things, but he doesn't want his father. And what's so potent about this is if this was just a story about waywardness and forgiveness and all that stuff, Jesus could have used any example of waywardness. He could have used a murderer or a thief, something that was clearly illegal. But instead, he uses an example that's not illegal, it's just unbelievably offensive. Unbelievable that he would even do this. Because this son is wishing his father dead and he's telling his father that. And this is how Jesus presents sin. It is the way we say to God, you let me have my life and you leave me alone. Let me have my life, leave me alone. This story would have outraged Jesus' audience because he's disgracing his father's name. He's ruining his father's reputation in his own community. People are going to now look at this father and they're going to say, he's the one who had the son that decimated his fortune because he just didn't want any part of it anymore. And what's even more upsetting is they have in mind how the father should have responded to that request in the first place. And that is he should have beat him for it. But instead, what does he do? He grants it. And so he decimates his ranch and he liquidates the money and he gives it to his son and the insult that's added to that is the son's plan is to go spend it in a distant country it's not even going to be in the economy anymore it's just going to be gone somebody else is going to end up with this the idea of a distant country here because remember this is a parable is a story jesus makes up right so he's making the story up the idea of a distant country is he's showing this drastic cutting loose from the way of thinking and living and acting that has been instilled in him his whole life. And he's saying, I don't want any of that. Henry Nouwen, who 
wrote a book called The Return of the Prodigal Son, which is a wonderful reflection on this parable and also on that Rembrandt painting over there, the second one uh, from the left. He called the distant country this. He said, the distant country is a world where everything considered sacred at home is disregarded. That's what's happening here. When you consider that this is a couple thousand years old, this story, it's fascinating how it repeats. How children say to their parents, all those things you tried to give me, the morals, the values, the principles, the wisdom, I don't want any of that. I actually just want you to let me go. What drives us to this? What are we seeking? Because we do it. We do it. For some of us, it's a chance to say, there are things I want to chase down. There are things I want, desires, pleasures. I'm going to chase them down. I'm going to have them. And I can't have them here at home. So I'm going to get out of here. We're saying, I don't believe I need the home that I've been given. I can do better than this. And in that is baked in this idea of, I will be the one prodigal who doesn't squander everything. It'll work for me. And you look around at others and you think, they've got it so much better, but I can pursue this. I can pursue a life I think I deserve. And to do that, though, I have to leave behind all those who have failed to give it to me. What you don't think about when you do that is how much hurt you leave behind. How much it hurts the people who have tried to love you with the wisdom of the experience of years, who have often in their own right gone off and squandered an inheritance in a distant country and have come back and said, I've, I've actually done this before. I know what happens. But how would you ever think about the hurt that that would cause if you've already come to a place where you're saying in your mind to the Father, I cannot wait until you're gone. The prodigal leaves. Then the prodigal negotiates his return. Luke tells us he squanders his money in reckless living. What a great phrase. What a great umbrella for all the things that that could capture, right? He squanders his money in reckless living or wild living. And then what happens is another story as old as time. The money goes away, and so do all of his friends. But it's not just that. It's that there's a series of things that happen. I remember talking with Russell Moore about this. So he's, he's preached here before Russell Moore. He's a friend of mine. He's a, he's a, um, he he's works for Christianity Today. And, and he, he talked about how when, when talking about this particular parable, with people in the third world as opposed to people in the first world, there are different things that jump off the page. In a first world setting, we hear that the younger son spent all the money and he was out of money. And we're like, that's the worst part of this story. People in a third world setting would be like, that's not anywhere close to the worst part of this story. You know what the worst part of the story is? There's a famine. See, we don't, we don't know what it's like for there to be a famine. When the famine comes, 
They sit up and they're like, oh, that's bad. That is bad. That's life or death. That's not just money. That's life or death. A famine comes. And so he hires himself out to a local farmer feeding pigs. Remember, this is a story Jesus made up. And so he's telling Pharisees and scribes, this younger son hired himself out to a Gentile farmer to feed unclean animals. That's where he is now. And he has nothing to eat. He's starving. And Jesus says, then he came to his senses. It wasn't the running out of money. I wish it was the running out of money. It wasn't the running out of money that made him come to his senses. It was his hunger. It was that there was nothing for him to eat. And he figured, I can go home. He's negotiating. I can go home. I won't go back as a son. I'll just go back as a hired hand, but at least I know I'd be free to try to make a living and I probably won't starve. But the problem is this is not repentance. It's not repentance to say to the father, I'll be different to you now. I'll just be a hired servant. I won't be your son. You can put me to work, pay me fairly, pay me unfairly, just put me to work. That's not repentance because he's not seeking his father's grace. There's no love in here. It's just a place to live a meager existence. And so he negotiates. But even as he negotiates, it's not a return to his father that he's after. It's just a return to his father's things, what's left of them. And it's a timeless story. He's found himself in this position where, I mean, we can all see it. As long as the drinks are flowing and there's money, the party is fine. It's a pretty nice life. But in reality, he's just draining it all away. And when the money runs out, nobody around him cares who he is in the slightest. And Jesus makes sure that we understand that nobody in this world cares who he is in the slightest. How? Because he ends up wishing that he could eat the slop that the pigs are eating that he's feeding. And he says, but nobody gave him any food. So many sons and daughters run off to some distant country thinking we're going to find a good life there, squander everything we've been given, and none of us find what we're looking for. The pain of the prodigal situation is that he had, in effect, made himself homeless. He'd left home in such a way that he would never be able to return. He burned the bridge. And the home that he thought he'd find in this distant country was one where he clearly held no value. When he got this job feeding a local man's pigs, he came to want the slop that he carried for the pigs. No one gave him any. And then he had to reckon with the fact that not only was he less important than the pigs that he was feeding, but that he had gotten to a place where in his heart he was now wishing that he could at least be there equal. What has to happen to bring a person this low? He took everything he had, everything that was coming to him too early, 
and now it was gone. And so was his reputation, his money, his self-respect, his honor, and because of the famine now, even his health. But he's still trying to satisfy this appetite. But the quality of his appetite is just now diminishing to where he thought, I'm going to live a good life of excess. And now all he really wants is the same things that the pigs are eating. What could have been an appetite for his father's love is reduced to an appetite for his father's things. And when he had his father's things, he gave himself to this appetite of a good life. When the father's money ran out, his, his appetite for the good life was reduced for the taste of slop. Why would anyone want this? Because this is the trajectory of saying to God, you leave me alone and let me live my life on my own terms. Are we sufficiently depressed? It's bleak. It's dark. Here's the good news. The good news is God doesn't leave us alone. Even when we're in a far country, glazed over by this illusion that we will find a better life apart from him, God in his mercy sends famine. When I was rehearsing this sermon this morning to an empty room, I got teary talking about this part. In the 8.30 service, I got teary talking about this part because I hate this part. Because what I wish is that people who have suffered could speak words of wisdom to people who have not suffered. And people who have not suffered would hear the words of wisdom from people who have suffered and say, thank you, you're sparing me from suffering. Instead, what often happens is we say, I don't want to hear your wisdom. And the Lord says, because I love you, here's a famine. What a mercy the famine is for this young man. Even when it comes, he still doesn't know how to be a son. Even when the famine comes and he says, I need to go home, he still doesn't know how to be a son. What he has to do is he has to admit he can't make it in the far off place. And so the Lord does hear what he does in the lives of so many and it's so painful. People in recovery talk about the bottom of the barrel, rock bottom. Bless God for the famine. If you're not at the bottom yet, pray for the famine. Because what we need is to be brought to our senses. The prodigal needs to know. He can't stay there. 
the third part of the story, the prodigal arrives back home. I'm all right. Okay. When the prodigal returns, his father runs out to meet him. Middle Eastern men don't run. It was a sign of a lack of dignity. But this one did. Because he wasn't a Middle Eastern man of dignity, he was a father. And he'd been looking for his child every day. And he finds him, and the son begins the speech. And the father has no desire to hear the speech. This isn't a moment of, is there anything you would like to say to me? It's not that kind of a moment. The father cuts him off, and then there's this series of actions and gifts that offer to this son unmerited forgiveness. He doesn't deserve a bit of this. And that's what makes it so powerful. He throws his arms around him and calls him mine. How does he do it? He puts a signet ring on his son's finger. What is that? It's his father's signature. He gives him instantly the authority to buy and sell in his father's name. With what? With the rest of what he has. He gives him the credibility of his name. And that robe he wraps around his father is a show of the father's ownership. Let me ask you, your father, did he have a coat that he wore? You'd see it in the closet, a kind of a coat. My dad wore leather jackets, leather coats, always. And I remember as a kid putting those heavy things on sometimes and they would just kind of envelop me. You know, look, I'm dad. That kind of garment where you see it and you're like, I, I, I know it's you because I know the coat. That's what he does here. He wraps his son up in a coat that everyone knew was the father's. They would see it and they would say, yeah, that's his coat. He's always wearing it. It's kind of his signature. Sandals on his feet. Sandals are worn by free people, not by slaves. But then these gifts are not where it stops. He keeps going. He slaughters the fattened calf. What's significant about that? It'd be one thing if he slaughtered the fattened chicken. A nice little family meal they're going to have. No, no. The fattened calf means that he's preparing a feast that is going to be for many more than just his family. It's a block party. And what is he doing? He's telling his neighbors, he's back and he's mine and you celebrate with me and you receive him back just as I am receiving him back. And then he hugs him and he kisses him and he calls him my son. The gifts that he gives, they're evidence, right? They're evidence of the father's love. This kiss is the experience of the father's love. This son who was lost is home. And what's so beautiful about this is the son doesn't understand even still. But he's home. And the father is saying, I've got you. Your head isn't clear. You don't understand yet. But you're home. Before he left, his relationship with his father was empty. He went through the motions but he didn't really know what it was meant to be a son to his father. But the father doesn't simply offer the son things. He offers the son his name. He offers the son himself. 
He offers the son his affection. And then he hosts a party to make it known to everybody. And it is only here, only after the evidence and experience of the father's love that the prodigal can repent and truly believe that he is loved. What does it take to repent? Does it take sorrow over sin? Yeah. Does it take insight into our foolishness? Yeah. But I'm going to say something strong right now. It takes more than a repentant heart to be forgiven. It takes more than a repentant heart to be forgiven. What more? You need, you need a father like this. You need a father like this who wants you home, who sees through our plans to settle as servants and says, that's not your call to make. You don't get to tell me who you are to me. I get to tell you who you are to me. And this is the kind of father that we have. It's the reason sinners and tax collectors flock to Jesus because he tells them, you're living in a distant country, but you have a heavenly father who loves you and wants you home. Now and again, Henry Nowen, now and again sounds like I'm saying now and again. Henry Nowen said, leaving home is living as though you don't yet have a home and must look for one far and wide. But home is, is where you're loved and it's where you're accepted, and it's where you belong. And Jesus says to the prodigal here, you know, you have a home. You have a home with the Father. You have a place where you belong. And if you wonder about that, just look at what he's sacrificing. His son. Are you a prodigal? And is he calling you home? You have a home. Come home. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word being living and active. I thank you for this story. And Jesus, I have questions <laughs> that I know I won't be able to have answers to until I'm with you in glory, but one of those questions is stories like these. Have you been, were you preparing from the foundation of the world to tell this story? Is the reason that we walk through the brokenness of this world in such a similar fashion so that we can hear a story like this and it work to part the clouds of our blindness and our foolishness? Did you just come up with this in the moment? There's so much power in this story, so much relevance even now. It's a, it's a story that doesn't age. We know what it's like to go after things that are empty and to have them prove to be empty and to leave us desolate and wanting 
and filled with regret. Many of us know what it's like to come back to you and to be received with this unmerited forgiveness that comes because of who you are, not because of who we are. Father, I thank you that the prodigal son is not the one who's allowed to tell the father who he is to him now. But that's the father's prerogative, to tell the son who he is. Would you give us the faith and the humility and the hunger to want to be told by you who we are and the faith to believe it? It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.